0: Welcome to Yoga for the Revolution, a show about self care in the age of resistance. Today we're talking about happiness again. And if you don't think we should, then go listen to the last episode. Last week we considered if we're allowed to be happy. Should that be something we pursue? If so, how can we pursue it responsibly? We talked about the difference between happiness, comfort, and denial and started to define what is and isn't responsible behavior on the road to happiness. Today, I want to dive a little bit more into not should we aim for happiness, but how can we aim for happiness and even more fundamental, what is happiness? So just a heads up, the first half or so of this exploration leans towards pessimistic nihilism but it's just it's just a turn it's just a little turn on the path there's a happy ending hang in there not all hope is lost I'm realizing slowly as these episodes move forward that my intention to stay fully positive all the time is uh, not my bag apparently so let's start here are humans built to be smiling and satisfied or are we built to desire and constantly strive. Well, I think we know the answer to that to some point. Andrew Oswald, PhD of the University of Warwick in the UK has this to say about that. Nature didn't want us to get fat and happy too quickly. And likewise, if animals were designed to get depressed and stay depressed, that might not be very sensible either. I like that guy. It's both. We're capable of happiness because we're designed to be capable of happiness. What Oswald seems to be saying here is is if we were satisfied and cool with whatever is all the time, we wouldn't have the motivation to hunt, to find shelter, to invent tools, to make art. On the other hand, we wouldn't have the motivation to start wars, kill people, or any of that stuff either. Dissatisfaction, unhappiness, can lead to progress, invention, striving. It can also lead to a cycle of dissatisfaction, cyclical striving, unkindness to other humans. But what Oswald is also saying is we weren't built to be miserable either because depression and misery is not a great survival technique as far as the species goes. There's a long-held belief in something called the happiness set point. You may have heard of the study where people were studied after they'd had a major life event one group won the lottery one group had major injuries and were in wheelchairs they compared those groups to kind of a happiness control group and as it turns out it seems that both groups eventually ended up just about as happy or unhappy as everyone else just as happy and or unhappy as they were before the life-changing event this is what started to set into motion this theory of a happiness set point. The idea being, we get used to our circumstances. We're likely to feel a spike in emotion, either positive or negative, but then we kind of even out, regardless of circumstance. That's not to say negative circumstances don't lead to increased stress, which could be chronic. And then overall, scientifically speaking, we tend to just... Play the hand word, dealt. So why do we constantly want to improve our circumstances? If it's true that there is a so-called set point, that external circumstances, even drastic extreme changes, don't have a permanent effect in changing, then what the hell are we thinking? What do we think the promotion or the weight loss or the new apartment is really going to do for us? Some of this is just because our imaginations are not great at predicting what will actually make us happier. There's a bunch of research on this as well, most of which indicates we're not that good at predicting or forecasting future happiness. So let's shift for a second and take this to a political place, because that's what I do around here. Why then am I less happy under a Trump presidency than an Obama presidency? For example have a solid answer to this one exactly. As a country, many people are under slightly or dramatically less positive circumstances, whether that means in their day-to-day life or in their esteem, attitude. Some people may be in better circumstances if they think their jobs will return or worse, if they're under threat of deportation, if their neighbors or friends are being threatened, if their health care is removed, if reproductive freedom is removed. So drastically different circumstances. Oh, Side note, let me get back to that in a second. Quick public service announcement. This one may have gotten lost in the shuffle, but the Department of Health and Human Services is proposing a dramatic revamping of Title X. You may have heard of Title IX. This is Title X. It effectively undercuts our only family planning program. So Title X is a government-funded family planning program that offers family planning. You may have heard this referred to as defunding Planned Parenthood, You may have heard about the gag rule. So basically right now, the government doesn't give any money that goes towards abortions. That's a rule that already exists. What the proposed changes to Title X will do is close clinics in the poorest neighborhoods, remove funding from any clinic that even refers a patient out for an abortion, or talks about abortion as an option. But it's not just about abortion. Closed clinics means less available birth control, Less STD testing, fewer mammograms, and healthcare in general for women and vulnerable populations, again especially in low income communities. Oh, and here's a nice detail. Doctors would also be able to refuse service to transgender people because of their own personal values. Values, in quotes. There's an opportunity for open public comment on this issue until July thirty first. So that's Tuesday of this week. That's if you're listening right away, that's tomorrow. If you want to send your thoughts to the White House, you can go to a number of websites. I'll leave all the links in the show notes. One is prh.org, that's Physicians for Reproductive Health. One is ConcernedWomen.org. You can go to Planned Parenthood or you can go to Department of Reproductive Control.com. Okay, PSA done for now. If I have a happiness set point, Wouldn't I be just as happy under a just and reasonable administration as a corrupt and horrifying one? I'm going to go ahead and say we have not adjusted yet. If the regime continues, of course there will be resistors. But overall, the theory goes, life may be completely different and eventually we will adjust. We may not be singing and dancing, but maybe we would find simple pleasures in other aspects of life, eventually coming to accept the atrocities worldwide and focus in again on family relationships, community, individual survival and satisfaction. I mean, you see this in oppressed communities around the world. People still manage to survive and find some nugget of personal happiness. On the other hand, a win on election day, whether in the midterms this year or the presidential election down the road, may be a relief, may actually improve the real-life circumstances of most people. Eventually, relative freedom will again become the norm and we'll find something else to be disappointed by. This is when I pause and start to think this is getting a little too nihilistic for me. So... Let's take that set point of happiness theory, and let's imagine it's true. If we have a set point, and external circumstances don't make the profound impact on happiness that we think they will, then can we change the set point? If we have an internal dial, can we turn it from you know meh to alright? Psychologists say yes, that we may in fact be able to make a conscious choice to improve our well-being. There's a woman named Sonia Luba there's a woman named Sonia Lubomirsky. She's a psychologist at the University of California and the author of The How of Happiness. She proposes that roughly 50% of happiness, this is a really nice pie chart. 50% of happiness is determined by genes, meaning it's totally out of your control. Maybe 10% is determined by circumstances, somewhat out of your control. And then the final 40% is determined by your thoughts, your actions, and your attitudes entirely within your control and again i'll link to all of these studies i'm mentioning because honestly it is a nice pie chart and everything i'm not fully capable of walking you through her scientific discourse on it so i'll just link to it but let's say we believe her some of our happiness level is predetermined by genetics this makes sense we know this is true a little bit just by observing human nature you all know someone who's able to find the silver lining in everything and you also all know someone who will find the rain cloud Some is circumstances, because, again, despite the research about wheelchairs and lotteries, chronic stress will definitely have an impact on psychology over time. Fair enough. And then we've got the rest, 40%. That's up to us. We have control. Side note, Lubomirsky points out, as should we, that this control over the 40% is really only true if our very basic needs are met. We've talked here about Maslow's pyramid a million times. If you're food insecure, if you're in an abusive or dangerous situation, that will play a significant role in your well being and your happiness in such a way that no amount of silver lining or attitude change is really going to help as much as getting out of that situation. But that caveat aside, we do on the whole underestimate how much control we could have over our own happiness. And I don't mean by striving to change our circumstances, which is normally what we do right? I want to be happier, so I'm going to change my circumstances. I'm going to get a new job. I'm going to get a new relationship. I'm going to change my body in some way. We think the external circumstances are what's going to do the shifting. What we've talked about so far is why mess with the 10% when you've got a big chunk of 40% you could really get your hands on and shift around. So what I'm saying is instead, we can try to change our attitude and our behaviors. Last week, we talked about happiness not being about having a perfect life, but having the tools to deal with whatever kind of life you have. I read an article in Psychology Today that got me so amped up about this topic that I really want to shout about it from the rooftops, but instead, I'll just talk about it briefly here and again link to it in the show notes I wanted to so, I wanted to just read the whole thing to you but um, I don't I don't think that that's what we're here for so this is an article from 2011 called the Four Attitudes of Happiness by by Raj Ragunatan PhD I'd like to apologize to Dr. Raj for certainly not pronouncing his lovely name correctly Dr. Raj talks about A lot of things, but there's one narrative illustration he uses that I think is really effective. I'm going to paraphrase it here. Let's say you're in a cab or an Uber or Lyft or whatever it is you've got, and the cab driver is taking a long way. He's taking the long way to your destination. You've got some options. One, believe he knows the shorter way and is trying to get more money out of you. That only really works in a cab where they charge you by how long you're there. Two, believe he is incompetent and doesn't even know the short way to go. Three, believe he does know the short way, but also knows some other information about why this way is better to take right now. Okay, so if you believe he's trying to rip you off, how do you feel? Pissed off? Angry? How do you act? Are you fuming silently? Do you yell at him? Maybe you don't tip him. You know, maybe you say something to him. Like, what the hell, dude? Why aren't you taking the tunnel? Overall, unhappy interaction, unhappy feelings. So what if you assume the guy's an idiot? How do you feel? Annoyed? How do you act? Maybe you're silently fuming. Maybe you don't tip him. Maybe you say something rude. Overall, unhappy interaction. But what happens if you assume he knows best? How do you feel? Fine. Taking care of. Maybe doubtful. Maybe you say something. Hey, is there construction in the tunnel? Why are we taking the bridge? Tunnels usually shorter. And from there, you have another chance to choose. Maybe he says, Yeah, they closed a lane through the tunnel. It's all backed up. The bridge is going to be much quicker. And now you have a choice. Assume he's right or assume he's bullshitting you. How will you feel? How will you act? Or he says, What? A tunnel? Let's do it. And then you have another choice. Think, yeah, that guy's an idiot. How do they let people drive a cab when they don't know the city? Or, cool, now we're gonna take the shorter way, and I taught this guy something about the city. Fun. So, obviously, these are a little simplistic, but you can see how these differences in attitude could change your approach, your reaction, your behavior in each small moment. Each small moment adds to the next moment, and the next, and the next. Taking one path, could be pretty miserable and taking the other path could be fine. Now I'm not saying it's easy to make those choices to shift old habits in your attitude. I mean, nor is this the whole entire answer. Dr. Raj goes on to say, you may have noticed those are only three. He talks about four attitudes for happiness. The fourth is more or less, be confident things will be fine no matter what. All right, the guy's trying to rip me off. okay. What does that really mean for me? Is it worth saying something? Maybe. If so, how might I say it to get the best possible outcome for both me and the driver? Remember earlier, we talked about being particularly bad at forecasting, at predicting the positive outcomes of a shift in circumstances. Getting this raise will make me 100% happier when really it might make you 8% happier. The same holds true for negative outcomes. Oh my god if this cab driver doesn't get me to work on time i'm gonna be fired i'll have no money i have to move in with family i'm gonna be on the street it's gonna be a tragedy maybe i mean maybe that's true or maybe it will be fine maybe your boss is late too maybe no one will notice or maybe they will and you'll apologize and it will be okay the fact is we often assume the worst and it doesn't help us so dr raj also talks about the dangers of being delusional Like, oh, he's assuming the best. Is that like living in an alternative reality and ignoring the world we're actually in? I'll let you read the article and get into that. But for the most part, being more optimistic, giving people the benefit of the doubt, being more grateful, it may not change everything all at once, but it can slowly start to tilt, to shift the happiness meter, to move your set point from pretty miserable to met just in the middle to, you know, pretty good. Talking about pretty good, I want to thank you for listening to the show because that makes me feel pretty good. Find all our episodes on Apple, iTunes, you know, that one, Google Play, all the casting apps, as well as at yogafortherevolution.org. There are going to be a bunch of links in the show notes for this episode. So go to the site and check them out. You can also find us on social, leave us a message, do your thing. So we talked about if we're allowed to be happy. We talked about if we can even attempt to be happy if we wanted to be. And we touched on the surface of the kinds of small changes in behavior that could help you shift your set point. There are a ton of theories and practices and behavioral changes around happiness. This is by no means exhaustive. But I did want to just introduce the idea that it's not the external stuff that makes the biggest difference it's some internal stuff and we can work on that we really can in the meantime keep breathing and live to fight another day I'm the happiest girl